Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art produced for WGXC by New Adventures in Sound Art. Last weekend was Dawn Chorus Weekend, which in the world of sound art and sound ecology has become increasingly connected to open microphone live streaming. This happens through an online broadcast called Reveille, which is organized by SoundCamp and the Acoustic Commons in the UK, with server access provided by the Locasota SoundMap. In Reveille, citizen broadcasters pop up all over the world and connect their microphones to the sounds of daybreak from their home location, and they share that with listeners tuning in here on WGXC and also the Reveille platform and Resonance Extra and NASA Radio. In the past, Making Waves has featured Reve organizers uh, Grant Smith and Maria Papadalaki and Don Scarf. But this year, uh, we're going to approach things differently and uh, share insights from some of the individuals who are operating some of these live streams from their home localities. Today's episode begins with Elizabeth Chitty about her observations, uh, relatively new to live streaming and sound recording. She's an interdisciplinary artist in St. Catharines, Ontario. And then following her, we'll have Rob Mackay and Andrew Laforet about the uh, live stream from Point Pelee National Park. Uh, Rob is a uh, composer uh, who's been uh, doing uh, soundscape works about uh, tracing the migration of butterflies uh, from uh, Mexico up to Point Pelee. And uh, Andrew Laforet is a uh, conservation uh, research uh, coordinator at the uh, Point Pelee National Park. Uh, and then uh, we'll uh, end the show with a conversation with Thomas Etnikoff in Vancouver about the live stream he did uh, from his home and also uh, his experiences earlier in the year live streaming from the floating Blue Cabin Artist Residency space in the False Creek area of Vancouver. Okay, well, in fact, it's Reve that caught my attention more than live streaming per se. Although now that I've had a, a bit of experience with live streaming, of course, my interest is being piqued more. But Reve, I hadn't, I think I had maybe vaguely heard about it, but I um, really only heard about it through you. Uh, and in fact, Darren, you're the source of pretty well most of my audio uh, development, shall I say. Um, and I love the, the concept. Uh, it's so simple and it's very beautiful of uh, following the dawn across the planet. And I just fell in love last year with the event, even the sound map. Uh, watching the the line of dark and light progress is very beautiful. But last year, uh, my setup for my participation was uh, less than than great. My phone was so old, I couldn't download the app. So I was using my laptop and I had the H2N as a mic just, um, you know, line out of the H2N right into my laptop. And I didn't expect it to be um, uh, brilliant, but really I was just trying to uh, do it, right? I mean, it was a, a little bit of a stretch there at the, at the beginning just to get um, registered and all of that. So 
COVID influenced my experience last year in particular. So I was saying I streamed from, I forget, five to six, uh, a little bit later went to work, uh, worked for four hours. Uh, it was a very stressful COVID environment at work. And you remember this time last year, uh, we were still, we were thinking this would all be over uh, fairly soon and it was all very strange. So I went to bed and I was really, really tired and I would wake up and I would hear these sounds and it was magic. I just loved it. I'd like doze a little bit and then I'd wake up and here, I'm, I don't remember where, the, the West Coast maybe. And of course, there's this long gap over the Pacific Ocean. And then later in the day, I remember Jakarta. And I just found the whole experience um, very moving. I think I would have, in any case, um, been entranced. As I say, the concept itself, the simplicity of it and the beauty of it, and the, the notion of it being tied to the dawn chorus, although, of course, the streams aren't necessarily um, bird-related, and I'm a, I'm a bird lover. But in the pandemic situation, it gave me a very interesting sense of uh, quite a profound connection with the globe, you know, with, with people all over the globe and all of us sharing this strange time uh, uh, in terms of the pandemic and then listening to one another waking up. And of course, the dawn is... Um, uh, almost a cliche uh, for awakening, for beginnings. And, but it was very powerful. I use the word cliche and that has a derogatory context and it does not function that way at all with Reve. It's a very simple, beautiful idea and image. Uh, and I just fell in love with it. So this year, uh, I had a better phone. My dear daughter had gifted me with a decent phone. So I was able to download uh, the Locusonis app. And I was determined that I would uh, use it. And uh, I did have to purchase uh, the adapter to connect uh, the phone to my H2N. But the sound quality, uh, I think you probably can attest to it better than, than I was um, uh, much improved and I was very, very pleased with it. So I streamed for two hours and all I do is uh, stick the H2N out my back door. My internet, my house is very small, but I don't have an internet uh, extender or anything. Um, I've just got the one router and the connection can be a teensy bit iffy um, in, by my back door. So I, I don't have data, right? So I, I'm interested in the notion of live streaming on a more regular basis, but I would need data for that because, of course, it's more interesting to do it somewhere other than your back door. But even I'm in a mid-sized Canadian city, uh, I don't consider my area terribly interesting. 
it's a working class uh, neighborhood, uh, but it's reasonably quiet. And I have a bird feeder and a lovely garden. So there are lots of birds. And um, anyway, I this year I was not working and I was not exhausted. And um, funnily enough, I, I'm not even sure, I might have heard less this year, although I, I kept it on most of the time. But there was a big problem with the server um, by the time they got to New Zealand. Uh, I remember that. And I, uh, at one point, kind of turned it off um, out of frustration. But then later, when I remembered to turn it back on, we were in uh, Kolkata. And I love um, that uh, person. I'm sorry, I don't remember their name. I love the description that they have on their page of this microphone on this uh, metal roof. And uh, that was streamed for quite a long time. And I was, again, entranced. So I'm a big fan. I'll just quickly tell you a little anecdote. Um, I'm renting the equipment for the installation that's been postponed um, uh, more than once at this point from Long and McQuaid. And uh, of course, uh, Long and McQuaid usually deals with um, uh, rock musicians and stuff. And I deal with a very nice man who's interested in what I do, uh, which is not something I expect. And I told him about Reve, and uh, we had some recent correspondence because the invoice had to be uh, redated. And he said he played it at work, and he got lots of strange looks. <laughs> and it, but it brought a smile to his face. So I thought that was lovely that, um, A, he enjoyed it, and uh, that uh, Reve who knows where, maybe it was Kolkata, was uh, playing in the local Long and McQuaid <laughs> to the consternation of the other, of his co-workers. But um, I absolutely, um, I really love it. This is why I'm likely to get more into field recording. I really like traipsing around listening on headphones. I'm sure you're the same, and anybody who's into um, soundscape recording, uh, we pretty well, you know, they pretty well need to to love it. There's, it's fascinating to me just how differently you hear, and one could say that one hears quote better, but um, in the sense that one hears more deeply in a way, um, even with my uh, H2N stuck in my back door, I heard an animal. And when I was doing my practice runs, at first I would rush out to the back door hoping to see this animal. I wanted to know what it was, first of all. Uh, and I never did uh, see it, but it's not a sound I heard if I'm just sitting at my back door. But with the H2N, I could hear this animal as clear as day. And it would wander in and out, and it snuffled a little bit at one point. Um, so there's that fascination. And of course, with the hydrophone, um, I'm probably going to be infatuated with it for uh, at least a few years. Uh, and I'm hearing a bit more than I expected because I was prepared to hear not much of anything. Anyway, just the experience of, of listening through headphones. 
to the environment that you're physically in is an interesting sense of displacement. And it's like a hybrid embodiment. There you are in the flesh, in a space, but you're listening through uh, the, you know, the technological device. And I think it's, that's something that resonates with me pretty much throughout my work, even in, in the 70s, really. I mean, being live is an attractive feature to me, for sure. Um, my body of work, which spans over 45 years, I mean, my, as you know, Darren, my, I started out in a live art form. I started out in dance. So the ephemeral and the live is, uh, you know, pretty much part of my bones. So while I... Um, uh, say in an installation, I'm building an audio program and I enjoy the editing process uh, very much. There is something distinct and, and separate to that kind of enjoyment with the, the live experience. And of course, the, um, the sense of uh, the unexpected, you know. Rob, for you, was the uh, impetus related to just hearing the sound of butterflies and the, that kind of unique moment and realizing you want to learn about that more, or did it derive out of other interests? I think it's been a bit of a, a journey, really. And uh, so I suppose, yeah, as I was just saying, um, my first encounter with monarch butterflies was in 2015, um, where I was already going to Mexico to uh, Morelia uh, to present um, some pieces and um, a talk at uh, the Mexican National Center for Sonic Arts, um, CIMAS. And um, I was just talking to an eco ecologist friend of mine, and he said, oh, you're going to Michoacan now? And this was sort of November time. The, the, the monarch butterflies are, are there. Um, no, actually, sorry, it was March. Um, and so it was just at the tail end of when they start the, the northern migration um, back. Um, and sort of Generation four starts, um, uh, and they, they fly to, to Texas. Um, and uh, I just did a bit of research, thought, well, this is, I knew very little really about the monarch butterflies and their amazing 3,000 mile migration. Uh, did a bit of research around it and then also realized as a sound artist that because they swarm in millions uh, when they're overwintering in those big clusters, um, that you can actually hear the sound of butterfly wings. That felt quite novel to me. Um, so I was able to fit in a one day trip to the El Rosario Reserve. Um, in uh, Mexico and I was lucky enough to be there on a day where it was sunny enough for them to be flying and I filmed them and um, recorded the sounds of these millions of wings, tiny wings flapping. Um, and then a year later, I was uh, asked to 
uh, create an installation around based around flight for a festival in Hull um, called the the Amy Johnson Festival, it's celebrating the famous aviatrix who was a sort of pioneer um, pilot, and she was the first person to perform a solo flight from uh, the UK to Australia. Um, I ended up collaborating with a Mexican poet, uh, Rolando Rodriguez, and media artist Jessica Rodriguez, and we created this kind of hide-like structure with four video screens and four speakers. And the sound component um, combined three layers. It was uh, field recordings, including the rustling sound of minions of uh, butterfly wings, the um, uh, specially commissioned poem from Rolando Rodriguez, and also a musical layer that was based on an improvisation that I played on the same day as I recorded the butterflies in the open air. Uh, and that was uh, alongside uh, American musicians David Blink and uh, John Sanders. And through that research and through my, I suppose over the last decade or so, my own research has moved more into the area of eco-acoustics and um, acoustic ecology. Um, and I'm increasingly aware of the importance of sound for understanding potentially the health of an ecosystem and how a kind of holistic way of monitoring uh, the sounds of a whole ecosystem and the relationships of different organisms in that ecosystem can help us to pick up changes in the environment over time. Um, and I was put then in touch in 2017 with Pablo Jaramillo Lopez, who is a monarch butterfly specialist um, and also a soil scientist at UNAM, the uh, National Autonomous University of Mexico. And he, we had this amazing conversation um, over Skype uh, for about an hour, and he shared his passion for the butterflies, but also I became very aware of the environmental threats that, that are threatening the species, and they're very much uh, sort of uh, an indicator species for these broader changes in the environment that are affecting other pollinators, affecting us, affecting our food, uh, and everything else. So we think there's three main factors that are affecting the monarch butterflies. Their uh, population has dwindled by nearly 90% over the last two decades. And uh, the main factors are industrial use of herbicides and pesticides, particularly in the Corn Belt in, in the US, which kills um, all the milkweed, which is the only plant that the uh, monarch larvae um, can, uh, can eat. Uh, there's also deforestation, um, which is a particular issue in Mexico where the monarchs overwinter because they only roost above 10,000 feet in the oyamel trees. So they're basically on the on the peaks of the mountain, mountain tops, which is quite a small surface area. So you've got this huge population of monarchs uh, very much packed into these small areas. So those habitats are very fragile. And then finally, like everything else, climate change. So a freak storm can wipe out thousands of monarch butterflies in, in, in a single night. So in 2015, actually, uh, when after I'd been to Mexico to film and record the monarchs, I then went to a conference in Arizona and I was introduced to Grant Smith from SoundCamp. Um, and I know that you were listening to the, their amazing Reveille broadcast where they live stream um, and broadcast the uh, Dawn Chorus around the world for 24 hours from all of these different stream points that the people are, uh, different people are connecting with. 
and um, that really switched me on to live streaming. And I know there's been a lot of monitoring sound, environmental sound monitoring done using recording devices, sometimes long-term recordings where you can leave uh, a recorder in the field for several months. But I wondered what it would be, be like if you could have real-time audio streams from uh, um, ecosystems along the monarch's migratory routes um, that we could then share with scientists and other people all the way around the world to start to monitor these changes over time. Um, and I'm also interested in the um, sort of artistic potential of those. And we've been weaving those into musical performances uh, and installations as well. Um, and so it was in 2019 um, that I got in touch with Andrew uh, Laforet at um, Point Pili National Park, which is this beautiful knife-edged peninsula that cuts into Lake Erie this is like a major migration point for the monarch butterflies and many bird species as, as well. And Andrew, there's a lot of things out of what Rob mentioned that it'd be good to go into from a conservation point of view. What have you noticed as far as the populations of butterflies in the time that you've been at Point Pelee? Has it, has it decreased significantly? Has it increased? Does it vary on its own? Yeah, it, it does vary for sure. Um, our trends kind of do follow the same trends that they see in Mexico. So when their numbers are up, our, our numbers tend to be up. When their numbers are down, ours tend to be down. Um, historically, you know, we, we were definitely on the downswing. Um, in the few years that I've been here, we've seen at least a little bit of an uptick. Uh, and I think the education campaigns have been great for that. People planting more milkweed. Uh, because for a while, you know, people were taking it out. It was a weed. People didn't want it. And then the awareness became more relevant. A lot of people were actually talking about, well, I should plant milkweed because we want to save these monarchs. Um, so I imagine that would contribute to it. Uh, hard to say for sure, right? But uh, we've at least noticed a little bit of an uptake, I would say, or an uptick uh, in the, couple, the few years that I've been here. I guess last year might have been a little lower than previous years. Um, but hopefully we'll, we'll continue to see those, those trends rise over time, you know, with more public awareness and wanting to see those populations thrive. So is, is your role as much about uh, educating the populations around you as it is about uh, cultivating an environment in the national park? Absolutely, yeah. It comes directly from the mandate of Parks Canada. So um, it's not just about protecting the park. It's very much about educating the public and, and making sure people want to not only protect the park, but ecosystems around their own backyards and encourage those population growths. And... Rob mentioned about having, uh, you know, these open microphone streams in these different points uh, and that that um, impacting research and so on. So have you have you noticed any uh, any differences in research and social activity around the park after the implementation of the microphone? I guess it's a little little too early to say for sure, because it's only been online for a couple of years now. Uh, it will be interesting to kind of compare from year to year. I know certainly the birds is one uh, a lot of people around here are interested in. Uh, this time of year, we have the bird migration going through, of course. So there's a lot of songbirds in the park. Uh, we have recordings from previous years, so you can kind of hear what species were heard on what days. And so that's a really good indicator as to what the populations are doing. Are they moving in earlier because of climate change or anything like that? Um, are some not showing up anymore? So those are the kind of things that would certainly be of interest to us. So I think, you know, in the over the next 
however many years. That'll be really interesting to, to check out. Um, but I will say even beyond just the, uh, the resource conservation side, uh, it's been absolutely instrumental in the visitor experience side as well. Um, with the pandemic, a lot of people haven't been able to travel and visit the park. So this is giving them the opportunity to experience the park in a new way. They get to listen to the birds that are migrating right now. And, and then, of course, in the fall as well. Uh, they get to hear the sounds of the waves crashing against our beaches, the wind, the rain. Um, so it is, it's a really neat, immersive experience and an educational tool as well. What are some of the uh, logistical aspects of installing this, this microphone there and some of the challenges? I, mean, I know that when Rob was probably out there recording, he could wander around with his microphone and go wherever he heard the sound happening. But with the with with these uh, streaming points and and also even that camera uh, capturing the night sky, uh, there are uh, uh, technical limitations that might uh, play a part in that. And I was wondering if uh, both of you could relate your different perspectives on that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, sort of quite quite recently, I mean, we've uh, uh, with this stream box, um, it's slightly in some ways simpler than the stream box that we have installed in Mexico because the Mexican one is entirely solar powered and it's running off grid basically. Um, and we're using a mobile phone network to connect to the internet. And then we're actually streaming all of the um, audio streams via the Locus Sonus sound map, which um, is run by, um, we're in collaboration with the University of Marseille and the art school in Marseille. Um, that's an open source project. Anyone can join in with that. Anyone can set up their own stream. There's even um, a mobile phone app um, uh, for that called Locus Cast. So it's really worth checking that out. It's always changing. Um, but the stream box at Point Pili uh, is running over a, a Cat5 Ethernet cable, and we're sending power over Ethernet to the box. And then you have this little Raspberry Pi computer inside a weatherproof box with two microphones. Um, and for the audio enthusiasts out there, they're two omnidirectional microphones either side of the box. So you end up with a kind of binaural image. So if you listen on headphones, it is pretty immersive and it sounds kind of 3D. And it's great to have it back online for, for um, SoundCamp's Reveille as well to being being part of that following the dawn chorus around the world too and it's uh yeah i've really enjoyed kind of listening back in and there's something about listening to the live stream the fact that it's live it's different to listening to a recording it really connects you with that place you know that even though there's a bit of a delay over the internet um it still really connects you with this is what this place sounds like in this part of the world you're really eavesdropping on that place um, and actually, just incidentally, um, you were asking about some of the research projects um, and um, a PhD researcher in Europe actually got in touch with me and he is um, developing singing robots um, and is actually, ex I think the part of this research is exploring Bernie Krause's niche hypothesis, uh, the eco-acoustician Bernie Krause, he has this amazing, well, several amazing books, but the one that really turned me on to eco-acoustics was The Great Animal Orchestra. Um, his original training was the musician, but then after going through all kinds of, um, sort of career transitions, he did a PhD in bioacoustics. And... Um, uh, he noticed that when he recorded uh, these sounds of pristine environments all the way around the world, 
that when you looked at a sonogram, which shows a kind of picture of the different frequency um, niches that different organisms are occupying, it's almost like looking at a, a musical score. It's like every um, species in uh, a particular biome uh, have evolved to communicate across quite narrow bandwidths of frequencies that uh, don't overlap with each other. They're finding their own spectral niche. And these robots, um, um, uh, this researcher, and I can't remember his name, unfortunately, at the moment, but um, uh, he uh, is using the Point Peely stream, partly because he's actually originally from, I think from Leamington, where the, the nearest town to Point Peely. So he's very much sort of connected uh, with, with back home. Uh, and he's based he's based in Europe now. Um, and he's using the live stream as data for the robots to use their machine learning algorithms to learn how to find their own spectral niche to sing within this the the point Peely soundscape, basically. Yeah, it's singing robots. That was not what I was expecting. <laughs> that wasn't on my list. <laughs> yeah, any chance we get to to kind of give our visitors or online visitors the chance to experience the park in a different way we we generally leap at it right so when rob approached us about the uh the microphone it seemed like a really cool idea right and and i'm really glad we followed through with it because it has been an awesome part of our programming here often people don't think of using a microphone on its own as a way of engaging the public uh, often it's the the video camera given that with the bird uh, migrations there that it seems that the microphone is a is actually an obvious choice there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you're you're getting more out of the microphone than you would if you were to just do sort of a video stream, even with the the mic attached to it, because it's kind of forcing you to almost close your eyes and listen to what species you can hear. Where if you're looking at a screen, you're not necessarily going to see them, right? They might be out of focus. They might be out of out of range. They might be in a tree somewhere nearby, so you might be hearing them, but you're not necessarily seeing them uh and so you don't have that opportunity to like try and look for them uh you're you're just basically there listening to what species oh i recognize that oh i'm not familiar with that one i should try and figure out what that is so it is a really unique experience just to have the sound on its own like that i think it's really cool it makes me really think of um over the last year or so in the times that we're living in um there does seem to be a bit of a sort of resurgence or, or um a greater awareness of sound and people have noticed this great silence you know particularly in the early lockdowns uh with the traffic noise um and airplanes um that, that, that sort of background the sounds that really mask uh, a lot of the sounds uh, around us are sort of uh, enabling people to listen or to hear the the, the 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 sounds of nature that are that are there that have been kind of blocked out by some of these things um and uh it makes me also think of uh, pete stollery's wonderful covid sound map project where he has a is using google earth and is asking for people around the world to send in recordings documenting this this time as well um so that's actually something else i'd, I'd like to put some of the point pd recordings forward for as well
when this residency came up for the Blue Cabin, which is a floating art, artist residency in False Creek. False Creek is right in the downtown of Vancouver, you know, a fairly large metropolis. And of course, uh, the conditions of the day with COVID, uh, we had to uh, really think about um, how that residency was going to work. We wanted to continue with it, um, but the original idea was very simple. It was to bring um, Al Neal's uh, piano uh, back to the Blue Cabin. Al Neal uh, is, is an iconic uh, musician and artist from the Vancouver area, um, very active from the 60s up through the 80s and 90s even. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of him or not. Um, and he lived in this cabin, um, almost like a squatter's residence. And this cabin was in uh, North Vancouver, um, in a fairly industrial area off of Kate's Park, which is called. And um, in the early 2000s, they decided, um, uh, Polygon, uh, a big developer, decided to come in and uh, and develop the area with some condominiums. And so they needed to move. Essentially, they got evicted. Um, so with Polygon and some other organizations, the cabin was remediated and uh, moved at this point into False Creek. It's a floating artist residency. So that's kind of the history of it. And Pippa's involvement, she inherited Al Neal's piano and uh, has been working on it as an kinetic sculpture for several years now. And the idea is to bring the piano back to the cabin for this residency. Which is where it resided uh, before when he, lived, when he used it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it is the piano that Al had in there for some 20-odd years, if I understand um, So as we were rethinking this residency, because we couldn't, you know, my role just as documenting the sounds of the piano in the area, um, it started to change uh, because really, because we couldn't bring people into the cabin as easily anymore, started to think about how we could engage um, the larger audience into that area. You know, it's a very interesting area, False Creek. It's gone through so many changes, you know, with uh, Expo in the 80s. Um, before that, it was uh, uh, in industrial area. Um, before that, of course, we had uh, um, other people living there. And, um, and, and it's going through a major change again. Um, that whole area is going to be redeveloped in the, over the next several years. So we still wanted to bring people into um, that area somehow. And I was aware of the Locus uh, Sonus project. And I started to think about it and wondering, is this something that I can do you know, as part of this? Can I operate a live stream for the duration of the residency? And so we proposed it to the uh, Blue Cabin people as part of the project. And I started to work on it. Um, I needed to learn a lot because I was coming you know, from ground zero as far as li live streaming goes. How does this work? What's the technology involved in that? And so my test bed became my apartment. And uh, we live in uh, Granville and Broadway area in Vancouver, which is a, uh, it is a residential street, but uh, we're flanked by uh, two major throughways, uh, uh, Granville Street itself, which runs north-south across the city. You know, if you want to go to the airport, you take Granville Street uh, from our location. And also Broadway, which runs each east and west across the city. So it's a fairly active area for 
a residential neighborhood. Um, we're subject to uh, lots of different sounds. Um, we have a fire hall close by, so we get the sirens from that at all times of the day. Uh, we have the traffic going by. Um, we're on also on a major bike route. Biking is very popular in Vancouver, so we have the cyclists going back and forth. Um, in the mornings, we can hear uh, the dawn chorus a little bit, which is primarily gulls in this area. Um, we have a few uh, local birds that come into the trees, some uh, uh, sparrows and that kind of thing. Sometimes they perform for us, sometimes they don't. Um, so it is a, a, a fairly active neighborhood um, with traffic, pedestrian traffic, and, and, and other types of things. And so it was a very interesting um, idea to me then. Okay, let's try it in the apartment, see what happens. Can I make this work? Can I cobble together the gear? And, uh, and that was the beginning of it. And so uh, in December, I thought I had enough going in there. I had to build my own microphones. I, I went down that route. I thought that was an interesting project in itself. And uh, turned on the mic early in December and uh, let it go. And from there, uh, we moved it into the Blue Cabin. And after that residency finished in the first week of March, I uh, came back here. And I have it set up again and run it um, whenever I can, you know, because, of course, there are challenges running from a setup from home, especially when you're in an apartment situation. So with home, it's a question of privacy kind of issues and things like that? As yeah, it is cabin, privacy. wasn't so much of an issue. Definitely at home, um, we have to negotiate when the stream can run. Uh, I'm working primarily from home these days, um, so I'm here a lot. Um, Pippa schedule is um, varies quite a bit. Um, she's off to another residency uh, next week up on the coast. Um, but when she's not there, she's here a lot, just like myself. So yes, we have to negotiate our schedules uh, when it makes sense, when it doesn't make sense. Um, I also maintain a, a, a fairly active teaching uh, schedule, and so I'm teaching from here. I, and of course, I can't uh, run the stream while I'm I'm working with my students. That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, so, so, this, so yeah, is so this because the sounds of your interior um, are audible in the broadcast? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm using um, you know omnidirectional microphones that are basically hanging out the window, and um, from here I can use a stereo pair, and that's fine. Um, but at the same time, it is picking up. Um, sounds from in here. The main unit, I'm using a Raspberry Pi with the stream box set up. Um, and so that all that gear is inside the apartment. Um, the microphones are essentially sitting on the windowsill pointing outwards to the street. Um, we're a north-facing apartment, which means we face the North Shore Mountains. Yeah. So the, the difference between that setup and the blue cabin then is that mm. with the blue cabin, was it Interior or exterior of the microphones? Yeah. Um, ex exterior, and that was in a challenge in itself. Um, one of my concerns uh, with the Blue Cabin residency and the setup was um, the weather. Okay, We were right on the water. Uh, the Blue Cabin sits on a floating dock on the water, and um, the, the cabin itself is raised up. And uh, Pippa and uh, one of the other people that's involved with the project peripherally, uh, Luke Blackstone, had to build a ramp leading up to the doorway of the cabin. 
and uh, to get the stinking piano in the thing, you know, you've got a very narrow, narrow uh, doorway to get that piano in, and it, that was a challenge in itself. Uh, but actually, the ramp turned out to be uh, fortuitous for me because that's where I put the microphone. I put it right underneath the, the, the ramp that they built. Um, there was a small landing area right out front of the door, probably three or four feet off of the water and right under there. So um, my main concern with that, and that was one of the reasons why I went to building my own mics, um, was what is going to happen to a microphone in the middle of winter in Vancouver, you know, uh, the west coast, eh, the wet coast, and on, with salt water. And uh, I, I suspected the mic would last a week, and we're there for five weeks. So there was no way I was going to go out and uh, use some expensive gear there. Um, so, but I really enjoyed the process of building the mics. That was that was a lot of fun, and they survived. And they were able to stay dry. They were able to stay dry. It was really quite impressive. You know, I just I did have to wrap it up a little bit, but we. Um, um, I just attached it right underneath the deck. It was well protected. Um, I checked on it very regularly. Um, we had some good storms go through there, and the waters were lapping right up on the deck there. Um, but yeah, they survived somehow. Yeah. And was the Raspberry Pi out there too, or was that, or did you run? No, cables I had in? that inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I ran. I ran cables out from the cabin. There were there were some through hole access points in the cabin, which they had uh, built into it originally when they remediated the cabin, and so I just used those and, and ran cables out to the mic. The only thing running out was the microphone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I kept the. And then there was a um, for the internet access. We have a. They they actually have an internet access point there, or is it, you have to use cellular or cellular. We have to use cellular, so that's why I stuck to a mono stream. Um, I didn't want to tax the system too much um, with the, with the internet there. It's you know essential. It's the cabin itself. You could say is half off grid. Um, you know we did have power there, but we had to be aware of the power. Um, the water was. Uh, in in tanks in the cabin and in the uh, a loft house that they built for the residence itself. Mm. Mm. And what were the kind of sounds that you heard uh, there in uh, on that microphone uh, from the cabin itself? Oh, it was, well, just the well, environment. It, yeah, how would you describe the environment? It? There is uh, well, the general environment is actually quite um, noisy during the day. Um, there are, uh, you're in a marina, essentially. There was a marina directly to the, uh, to the east of us. And then further along is Science World. And um, if you know Vancouver at all, Science World is accessed by a major throughway, uh, which is Main Street. Um, to the west of us is the Canby Street Bridge. And directly across is um, the, the Olympic Village. And as I said, they are redeveloping that area. So um, during the day, during the week, it was, it was quite noisy. You know, to go out on the deck and, and, and listen for a while, you're very aware, um, really, of the traffic. The din of the traffic level was, was high, very high. And um, the construction... Um, in the mornings especially was was, was quite quite oppressive um, but the early mornings 
a period in the afternoon, say between 2 and 4 o'clock, and then the, in the evenings, it was actually surprisingly quiet. Um, the traffic would die down. It was still there. It was always there, but it would die down. Um, there was, uh, directly across from us there, uh, across the water, there was uh, a series of trees along the pathway there. And um, the crows flew in and out regularly every day. You know, like the dawn course was so predictable. About, you know, as soon as the first light, um, the gulls would start arriving and be sleeping in the loft and they'd land on the roof and we could hear them on the roof. Eh? And then followed by the gulls, the crows would come back in. And uh, boy, those guys are noisy, eh? especially when you, like hundreds of them, hundreds of them flying by. You can see them. Uh, we can see them from our apartment here as well at, at dusk when they fly out. And following that, um, as the residency um, continued, it's, we started to move into spring. And, and so the geese, the geese become more active. It's a very interesting. I wasn't aware of this before, but there's this period of a, probably about two, two weeks or so where, where the geese are incredibly active. Um, I guess they're staking out territory for nesting and that kind of thing. Um, and so again, they would, on, on their roof, there would be a, a battle between the gulls and the geese for territory because they like geese like being up high and looking around as well above the water. Um, so those were the main things, but also what I found interesting was um, um, the people that would come through there. Um, there was a uh, small ferry dock adjoining the dock that the cabin was on, and so the comings and goings of those people um, were quite interesting. You had all kinds of people that used that as a service to get into down the downtown area or to go home at night. Um, and there's a major uh, walking path along that area. So again, people are going by their joggers, cyclists, people with their dogs. Um, and so was the, was the blue cabin a public place that you could come into, or was it a private space for the artist? Yeah, a private space for the artist. And uh, the original idea would have um, open house and, and viewings and that kind of thing. And of, of course, that had to be scaled back uh, quite a bit. But they were going right by your door anyway, so you had that sense. They were going the right by our door. Mm -hmm. uh, a stone's throw away was a small parquet. And I'll tell you, that parquet got used a lot by everybody. And um, uh, all kinds of people, all kinds of people. Um, for about the first week we were there, um, somebody new slept in that park every night. Um, you know, maybe a, a single person or maybe a couple would set up shop in this park at, you know, pull out whatever it is that they needed to stay the night. And they would stay the night and then they get shooed off in the morning. And, uh, yeah, every night it was somebody else. And so you could hear them, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning and put on the headphones and start listening to the mic. And, oh, somebody's having a party next door. <laughs> you know? And uh, so that was that was really interesting to see that, um, that real mix of... Uh, of people uh, f that are living different lives, you know, like these people that that are in a position where they need to stay in the park, and at the same time, it's such an affluent neighborhood there. Um, you know, the young, wealthy people uh, live in that neighborhood and enjoy that park area as well. It seems to me that the, having the open microphone at your place 
connects you to the outside world and the and the goings on that we tune out or don't realize when we're locked inside our homes all the time. You know, mm. even without yes. COVID, we're you know when we get home, we're home. Yeah, abs- absolutely, Darren. Um, it's it's really been an interesting experience. You know, like you have, um, th- there are all these practical uh, issues in setting up a live stream, of course. And uh, but when the mic is running, you have a microscope, microscope literally on the world around you. And uh, you know, I'd laugh at myself, or Pippa would laugh at me. You know that. Uh, the window's open. I can hear what's going on. The microphone's five feet away from me, but I got the headphones on and I'm listening, you know? And and there's there's really developing, like you said, this this awareness of of my environment and uh what's going on there. Um you know, this idea of um this daily cycle of life or this rhythm of life that's going out unfolding in front of you or unfolding in front of the microphone. And yet at the same time, there's always this um, level of change going on. And, um, or, or the, uh, the surprises, you know, the surprises are always enjoyable, even if uh, they're noises or, or if they're maybe a, a small bird is giving you a concert that you haven't heard before. Um, and, and the people, I think um, the aspect of, of the, you know, we live in a city, uh, my neighbors, I have thousands of neighbors. Um, I'm interested in what they're doing. There's um, some, some really interesting people that come through um, this area. We have a man that shows up uh, typically in the spring. And I'd say for the last, I've lived in this neighborhood for 25 years. And over that period of time, this man has always been there, and he walks the neighborhood, and he likes to sing. You know, and it's it's really kind of interesting. He's been doing this in this neighborhood for twenty years. In the spring, for maybe a month or two, then he's gone, and uh, you know, so yes, that's it's very interesting. Did you do a lot of sound recording before this? Like, what draw you to having to doing an open microphone? I mean, if you mentioned your music background being more in the traditional uh, composing, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, how what 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 was the key to the transition to to exploring this? The live aspect. It it really has to do with the. Um, Yes, just the pure aspect of live uh, sound. Um, recording is a very interesting discipline. There's no doubt about it. Um, and there's lots of crossover. But with, with the live aspect of it, you, you have to um, accept whatever comes into the microphone, and that becomes part of the, the soundscape. Uh, you know, when you're recording, uh, you spend so much time on isolating a subject. That's that seems to be, at least from my experience, that's that's what what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to isolate a guitar or a piano or um, whatever it might be, and you take that outside, and of course, a whole new set of problems occur okay how the heck do i deal with this plane flying overhead and what have you but live microphone all of those things all of those 
things that we normally think of as distractions in the studio or in the recording situation become part of what you're doing. And so even that din of traffic is, is now, okay, that's, that is this soundscape. You know, that is the underlying sound of what's going on around here. And these other sounds, you know, come in above it and go below it and, and what have you, and sometimes pop out, you know, change in weather. Oh, that recording I sent to you of uh, New Year's Eve. Well, you know, it's quiet here at 12 o'clock on uh, COVID New Year's Eve. Um, those sounds were coming from downtown. That's two kilometers away from here. Yeah. Um, so uh, that to me is is a real draw actually this uh, uh, I don't want to say unpredictability but um, uh, there's something exciting about a, a live sound that, that that's missed in the recording do you find that with these open microphones that what you're hearing is not what you would expect in a lot of cases like what you mentioned with New Year's Eve um, like there's always that element of of uh, surprise. Like if you scripted it that I was going to put a microphone out on New Year's Eve, I would hear X, Y, Z. But but actually there's there's all these other characters uh, that are part of the environment too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that was what was so amazing about um, the uh, the Dawn Course program that we were just involved in. Uh, you know, you had this 24-hour period, this trip around the globe, where really anything could happen. And uh, there were surprises, weren't there? Um, there were many, many surprises that were interesting. You know, hearing people working around their microphones to me was interesting, you know, and, and what happens around that. Or, oh, and in, in some cases, oh, it's a little quiet over here at 5 a.m. Wonder why that is. Why aren't there a lot of birds singing? Why are there neighbors? There's, uh, the yard seems to be full of bird song. Yeah, yeah I, I noticed, Steve, with my own feed that at 5 a.m. it was pretty quiet because um, we had a cold night that night. Uh, it, went, mm-hmm. it went below zero. In fact, we had snow during the day leading up to it. And um, uh, so... Uh, but once after for for whatever reason the birds it's like they just decide to sleep an extra hour or something but by 6 a.m it was very active Uh, you know Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. typically it would have they would have already been you know uh busy you know um and i i I asked people who were i was sort of facilitating doing open microphones like leave it go for a while you know don't just do try to get you know 20 minutes of dawn you know try to keep it going for a couple of hours because there is a whole i think part of what's interesting about it is the whole transformation from night to to full morning and uh and that takes three or four hours for it to play out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. agreed yeah that's exactly what i was thinking like um it's an amazing project, but that, that 10 or 15 minutes um, for each location at that time doesn't really give you enough time to, to get the full unfolding of the dawn. But it, what it certainly did was, was bring 
bring you into a place and say, okay, this, this place has potential. Can I revisit this microphone uh, later on and, and, and see what is happening there at, at dawn? And over that course of a couple hours. Yeah, for me, the morning time unfolds um, oh, probably over about two, two hours or in a bit, actually. Yeah, at least, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at least, yeah. So having done this and in the last six months, uh, the um, are there places that you like to take the microphone or are you happy with it being connected to where you are? Hmm. Well, there's, there's really two things that I'd like to do uh, with this at this point. Uh, one is, is to build a... Uh, a more of a portable uh, stream box unit of some kind, uh, one that I can take out to locations that I'm interested in. Um, for example, I, I really like Jericho Park. Um, I don't know if you know that area or not, or for your listeners, that's um, a beach area close to the university, and uh, there's some uh, a real mix of, of ocean and, uh, and parkland there. And I really like that area, but and if I had my choice, I would have streamed from there. Um, but I just didn't have the portable setup for that. Um, so that's certainly one thing that's on the list uh, for open microphones. Um, and as an aside, I really wasn't having much luck streaming from my phone. It just was not working for me. Um, and then as a, another project, I would I would love to set up an open mic in um, in a more permanent location outside of the apartment. Um, so we're looking for, um, you know, cho choosing a location is an inst interesting problem. Um, like with an apartment, you know, again, it was a really a practical decision. I need to test this stuff. Um, I need to figure out how it works. Okay, there's my apartment, all my gear is here, I can do it. Um, but it would be really nice to set up something uh, a location not unlike the Blue Cabin or uh, uh, some kind of uh, a nature reserve or a bird sanctuary and see if we can't um, set up something that's a little more long-term. 